so many Australians, they haven't heard about Persian food. They never tried Persian food yet, but they like it. They like this food. You know, when they try for first time, they come back. They ask me, where are you from? What this food from? And I was so happy. I was like, okay, this is my job now. <laughs> Today on Jodie Lennon, we are speaking to another person who has arrived in Australia as a refugee. People who've come here as refugees have brought so much to our culinary landscape and society more generally. My own father and grandparents came here in 1949. Holocaust survivors and more immediately escapees from the new communist regime in Czechoslovakia. They didn't have a super easy time of it, but they were granted citizenship and were able to find their way forward as full members of the society that they then went on and continued to help create and forge. But not all people arrive in Australia like this and the way that they are welcomed or not can have a huge impact on their own lives and the contribution that they're able to make to Australian society. Hamed al Hayari is a cooking instructor, recipe developer, social entrepreneur and restaurant owner. He wears a lot of hats. He was born in Iran and now, after a hard road, is an important part of Australia's culinary landscape. Welcome, Hamed. Great to have you on Dirty Linen. Hi, Danny. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm really excited to be chatting to you um, because I'm, I just think what you've done and what you continue to do is, is really incredible. Can you tell us about your businesses, uh, Cafe Sunshine and Salamati? Uh, so, yeah, I have a cafe, a social enterprise cafe run by refugees and asylum seekers in uh, Sunshine, Sunshine, Victoria. And yeah, it's like uh, I opened this cafe in 2019, July. Before that, I, was, I had catering. I was doing my own catering. And before getting, I was doing cooking classes with Fiti to Fit. So I started, you know, uh, I came from Iran at 2012. I came to Australia and then I started. Do you, can I say my whole story? <laughs> it, yeah, definitely. I'm gonna. I, I was going to ask you, but you can just get on with it for sure. <laughs> All right. So I came to Australia at 2012. I came as a asylum seeker because I came by boat, and there is a reason I ca I came by boat. And I wanna tell to people who are hearing this podcast. Uh, in my country, I was born Muslim because my country is Muslim country, and my parents were Muslim. They are Muslim, Muslim, in, and that's the law. When you born in Iran, you born Muslim. And there is no option, you know, there is, you can't choose your religion, you can't change it. When you're born Muslim, you have to uh, die Muslim. That's what's happened in Iran. And government, Iranian government, force people to follow that religion. And they don't have freedom about that. I was 19 years old and I became atheist. And uh, I joined the group. It was underground illegal group. We took a risk, you know. It was 17 people who were atheists, and we had some activities, small activities. And then uh, after two, three years, a government found out about us, and they arrested four of my friends. Those 17 people, four of them, and then they disappeared, and we didn't see them until now. Still, the parents they don't know where they are. And 
uh, that's very like sad because the parents they don't know they are, are they still alive or they are still in jail where are they you know and that's what's happened when you do something against government in Iran and even if you are out of Iran you know sometimes I do activities against Iranian government and people are telling me how don't do that it would be dangerous maybe for you even you are in Australia maybe they send someone to you but I just wanna you know have freedom to talk about what they're doing to be honest and then so but that's like a, we pay for that and what was the payment leaving Iran illegally and then it was uh, dangerous and risky to come by boat to Australia but I didn't have any time to go to embassy to get visa I did I couldn't go even to embassy you know they could arrest me because they were looking for us the quickest way could run 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 from Iran it was coming to Australia that was the best option that time and we you know sometimes people think we do crazy we are crazy because we did that but you know it's better I feel like uh, when I was taking that uh, risk I was telling myself Hamid it's better you die in ocean by a shark not by a government they hang you in one of the jail in Tehran so that was the reason so they could government could hang me so I didn't stay there I left Iran immediately that time and I came by boat Hamed it's such a yeah intense sad and shocking story that you tell us and it's you know it, it causes me to reflect on the place of religion in Australia and you know the fact that you had this private thought like a change in the way that you you thought about the world and you know about God and that this became an external issue something that really put your life in danger I mean it's so hard for most people in Australia to understand this was it things that you saw around you in society in Iran that that caused you to lose your faith in God? Uh, I don't know. I you know I think because I had that uh, pressure from my family, from the government, from community, and sometimes you know it's like a, you're telling kids, for example, you have saying, "Don't touch the heater to kids; that will burn your hand." When you say that to kids, they're going to touch it because they want to know what's the burning. You know what I, what you mean? What I mean? And, and that's it. I think that's the feeling when they're forcing you. Like, you have to wake up early morning, afternoon, night time for like, you do uh, praying. You just, you know, praying in different language, the language you don't understand. Reading Quran. It's like a Persian language, it's like a, a writing, it's same as Arabic language. But we don't understand meaning of the, I can read Arabic words, but I don't understand the meaning. And Quran is all in Arabic words, and uh, for me and for my friends, who were close, my, my close friends, it was hard for us to just do something we don't understand. You know, like they, they keep saying, if you're praying, that means you're thanking your God. Okay, right. I like to thank my God to what I received, but but why I have to thank in different language? Why I cannot do that in my own language? If I'm going to talk to that God, I need to understand what I'm saying to Him. You know, those those are very small things. We had lots of big questions. 
even those religious people in Iran, uh, who we call them Mullah, they couldn't answer us. And when we asked those questions, you know, they, they were saying us, like, you shouldn't go deeply about religion. It's not good. You shouldn't know too much, you know. And that's, that's like, okay, is there is something wrong. You know, there is, uh, it's very personal things. And I don't want to yeah. be, you know, I feel like, this is personal and I don't want to follow. I don't need religion. That's me. Some people they need, I respect their religion. But me, myself, I don't want it. But in Iran, I couldn't do that. In Iran, it's not Australia. You can't tell to people you are atheist. You can't tell people you don't have religion. You can't be, tell to people you're not believing God. Because they could just go report you and then that's it you're gonna be in uh, police uh, religious police we have two different police in, uh, in Iran one normal police like Australian police another one is religious police called Sepahe Pastaran Sepahe Pastaran they care about your activities about religion like in Ramadan for example Ramadan coming if you drink water outside your home and if they see you they can arrest you if women in my country, they don't wear hijab, or if they wear hijab, but the hijab is little bit like, for example, sexy or hot, they, those people, those religious police, they will arrest them. And that's not a freedom. And I feel like that time I was like, I'm going to leave the Iran before they found me. So I came to Australia. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, it's just such a different way of life and about yeah thinking about personal freedom what was your journey to australia like and what were did you come with some of your friends that were in the atheist group with you no i didn't come with friends but every one of us go different countries some they are in turkey now some they went in europe and yeah mostly in europe and turkey uh, i'm the only one i came to australia but i tell you about journey it's interesting for some people so it was like, you know, going to Australia, the guy I found in Tehran, he said, I take you to Australia, you pay me 5,000 American dollar, and then you go over there, there is someone, you pay him 3,000 American dollar, and that's it, he will take you there. I didn't know that guy, but that time, I, I didn't have any option, only to trust. So I trust that person. And I, he said, you have to go to Indonesia as like, you are tourists, you want to go visit Jakarta. And then you go to this, uh, after International Airport, Jakarta International Airport, go to this address. I follow all his instructions, and I went to that address. The address was Motel. The guy who was there, he said, okay, where, you come, where are you from? I said, I'm from Iran. This guy sent me, that's his name. And he said, he will look after me. He said, yeah, pay me 3,000 and wait here for two weeks. In this motel, after two weeks, I will take you to Australia. And then I didn't ask much, but I was like, okay, I listened to him. So I was there for two weeks. Then after two weeks, I went to him. It's like, it's day to day. He said, no, you have to wait one week. Again, after one week, he said, wait one week, wait one week. It wasn't only me. It was other people waiting in that motel from different culture, from Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Lebanon, Iraq, you know, everywhere. And then those people, they were uh, like me. They were going to come to Australia. And the guy, he said two weeks. He changed that two weeks to two months. Anyway, we yeah. two months in Jakarta. When I arrived in International Airport, 
over there the police they ask us extra money because they say you are going to Jakarta and I paid him one thousand dollar just wow. to just stamp my passport to give me 28 day visa and then after just 10 minutes after that I took the taxi and then after Jakarta five minute driving after airport another police come front of the taxi with bike and they stopped us and he said can I see your passport I gave him my passport and then he said you can't go I gonna uh, deport you and then he asked me another $500 I paid Whoa. him another five. In that motel, we wait two months there. Every time police see us, they ask money. <laughs> yeah, I believe that it's like uh, something they see you are from Middle East. You look Middle East. Okay, these guys, they want to go to Australia. Wait, let's make some money. Wow. And that was so disappointing. Yeah. And anyway, after two months, one night, the guy who moved us, we were, we driving on the truck. It was like 114 people, four trucks, dividing four trucks. After five hours driving in behind the truck, big truck, you know, we were like a, uh, you know, like sheep. And how they put animals in the truck, it was similar. And then five hours driving like that, it was so bad feeling. I never experienced that in my whole life, but I was like, okay. This is the cost helmet you have to pay. And then we arrived at one of the beaches in Jakarta. I don't know which beaches, but five hours driving from Chisarua in Jakarta, the suburb called Chisarua, to the beach. Then we arrived there, and then in there they were some small boat for five people, for five people, six people. And then they divide us like 20 a small boat, and then we go in middle. It was one big boat. All those 114 people, all those 114 people, they went to that boat, and it was very small. It's like a fishing boat. Maximum like 60, 70 people could go inside that, but uh, they, you know, you can't. It's I can't imagine. It's so hard. I couldn't move. 38 hours we were on that boat to arrive to Christmas Island. In that 38 hours, I couldn't move. I was sitting and sometimes may, when my leg get tired, standing where I was. Again, sitting, standing. That was my only my movement for 38 hours. Everyone, not only me, all people, women, kids, young people, old people, mixed from different countries, from everywhere. Then we arrived. We arrived to Christmas Island. Then we were waiting front of Christmas Island inside the boat for five hours. And then uh, we were seeing those officers who were working, Serco officers, who were working in that Christmas Island. We shake our hands. It's like, we are here. Hey, hey. We just, you know, they didn't even care. You know, after five hours, one of the Australian Navy from back, they came and they take us. From the Christmas Island, nobody take. Then those Navy take to the Christmas Island. <laughs> it was like uh, the process, I don't know how it was working, but it was so funny. Now it's funny. Oof, that time was doesn't funny. sound very funny. It sounds inhuman. Yeah, that was so painful that time, but right now I'm laughing. And then it's 
it's been there, Christmas Island, and some, you know, condition was good. We had, like, English classes, so because I never prepared to leave my country before that, I never go learn language, you know. I'm Persian, I speak Persian, my mother language is Persian, so I never prepared to learn English. I never think one day you will leave Iran to another country. So I didn't know much English, only hello, how are you, what time is it? Very basic, simple. Then in Christmas Island, we were there five months. And then after five months, we came out with bridging visa to Melbourne. The visa condition was no work right, no study right. For two years, I had that bridging visa. Not only me, so many people. Still, there are some people after eight years, 10 years in Australia, they don't have work right. They can't even volunteer. And, and then that's it. After two years waiting in Australia, I received my bridging visa again, but the condition changed. They gave me uh, working right and a study right. After that, I started learning some English. I took uh, some English courses and uh, in Lavertron Education Center. And then I made myself CV with my experiences. So in my country, I was chef. I had my own small restaurant and I always wear chef. So I came to Australia, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know that these people, they like my food, they eat Iranian food or not. So slowly, slowly I researched and uh, I, when I received my visa, I made myself CV with my experiences in cooking. And I went so many cafe and restaurants in Melbourne to find job as a chef, as a Persian chef in restaurant. I didn't find a good job. I only find one job after seeing 50, 60 cafes and restaurants. I see on, I found one job. The guy called me after two days when I left my CV in his restaurant. He said, you can come work to me, to my restaurant every Friday, Saturday night from 5 to 11 p.m. washing dishes for $8 per hour. God, that's terrible. At- yeah, and I decided to not work. I was like, oh, don't do that. So I did, I start, uh, I make a good decision because after that, I was like, oh, it's best to make some reference. You don't have reference around Australia. You don't have qualification from Australia, so you can't find job. First, go make reference. So I was like, okay, I go volunteering job. I was like, I found a center in Futsal called ASRC. It's for asylum seeker and refugee. Every day they feeding 250 people, and I went there. I start volunteering uh, the, in their kitchen every Wednesday and Friday. I was cooking Iranian food with other people for 250 people, and that was my good uh, start because in that place, in that charity, I found out so many Australians they haven't heard about Persian food. They never tried Persian food yet. But they like it. They like this food. You know, when they try for first time, they come back. They ask me, where are you from? What this food from? And I was so happy. I was like, okay, this is my job. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I was lucky in that center. One of my friends, after like being there for two years, in 2016, one of my friends, they said to me, uh, Hamad, there is a job opportunity for you. It's like running cooking classes, teaching your country food to Australians. I, was, I never teach, like, I've never been teacher, 
But I was like, it's good opportunity, you know. I can teach food. I'm not teacher, but tell, teaching, telling people how to cook, it's okay. Um, I had a problem, but my English wasn't perfect. I started my cooking classes in 2016 with Philly to Fit. That organization called Philly to Fit, they like a social enterprise, not for profit organization supporting refugees and asylum seekers. I was Philly to Fit first cooking instructor. I start with one day weekly cooking classes, then my cooking classes became very popular. Sometimes in week I had three cooking classes. And then in like three years working with Philly to Feed, I finished two, over 200 cooking classes. And I met over 2000 people who came to my cooking classes to learn my culture food. And those people always I ask them, give me feedback. Tell me, do you like Persian food? Is that too salty, too sweet? Tell me what to do, you know? I always was researching about my culture food. Then those people asking me, like, how much do you have restaurants somewhere to come to eat? Do you do, you do catering? That time I didn't have restaurant, but I could do catering. So I started my catering, a small one, myself only cooking for people, like uh, dinner parties, a small catering, a small functions. Then... That became popular. I made myself in Instagram page called Hamed's Persian Kitchen. In that page, lots of inquiry. People, I was like putting photos of uh, cooking classes, photos of my catering, and people ask me more. Then I feel like I, I need some people to give me hand. I asked my friends, I said to them, come, let's work together, I pay you. So I, what I did, I said to myself, Hamed, one day if you have an opportunity to make it job opportunity to people, to give a job to people, try to give that job opportunity to people who are new in Australia, people who doesn't have qualification, who doesn't have reference, but they can cook. Like myself, I'm very good cook. I didn't have reference and qualification from Australia. As so many, after so, seeing so many restaurants and cafe in Melbourne, I didn't find job because I didn't have reference, because my English wasn't good, because I didn't have qualification. But those people actually missed the opportunity because I'm the good cook. So I, I said to myself, Hamid, if one day you open something, give the job opportunity to those people. So in my catering, I start myself. After one year, we were five people. One year after that, I opened... Cafe Sunshine and Salamati House in Sunshine. And I was telling myself, okay, I do it as a social enterprise, supporting refugee and asylum seekers, and make a charity to support those people, not for profit cafe and restaurant. And yeah, that's it. That's my story. And now I have nine people. They are asylum seekers and refugees. They're working in this cafe. Uh, I'm really proud of this place because everyone here is asylum seekers even who's the boss like me i'm the asylum seeker it's, it's really amazing and you're such a great example of when people are allowed to contribute then they will contribute and you know you've you you weren't welcomed into australia um you know initially or properly and but now you're just doing such important work for people who've followed, um, who've come here as well. Um, Hamed, what's your visa, visa status now? Has the bridging visa, are you still on a bridging visa or do you have um, permanent residency or no, a pathway to it? 
I granted. I granted uh, after I had interview with immigration. I granted to have five years visa. It's called shape visa. The, the uh, unfortunately immigration this year is not easy with us. It's difficult and didn't give permanent to many people. People, so you know, after bridging visa, we were thinking, oh, we're gonna if we grant it, we're gonna get permanent visa. But they didn't give us permanent visa, and they gave some three years visa to some people, some five years visa to other people. And they said, for example, I have five years visa. They said after five years, you're gonna be interviewed again. If your country safe for you to go back, you have to go back. If not, you will get another five years visa. Uh, they didn't talk about permanent visa. It's so disgusting. I'm really so upset that that's the case. It's really appalling. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. Seriously, it's, it's not fair, you know. It's really, it's really not fair. I mean, I'm sure the story you told yeah. us, you know, I'm sure immigration is well aware of um, why you had to leave and why you need to be here. And um, I think to uh, to force you to live in that uncertainty is incredibly unfair. And it's it's amazing to think, like, look at what you've created when you're still living in this uncertainty. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine... I guess you must. I mean, what do you do? Do you just try to put it out of your mind and get on with things, or is it is it always sitting with you? Uh, actually, you know, it was at the start. I was so upset. I was taking anti-depression, anti-anxiety because I was stressed about visa. What gonna happen? Why if they sent me back to Iran? If government, Iran government, arrest me if they hang? You know, those kind of things. And always I had a stress. And I was taking medication, and then I, one day I said to myself, Mohammed, best to stop your medication and just leave that part just have a life here okay you can't go back you know that's fine you don't want password it's okay but leave here so i decided to fo uh, focus on other uh, goals i have in my life and for now i just think okay i'll just leave that part visa part I'll leave it to karma. <laughs> wow. I mean, it just... One day we will get to that, yeah. It, sh it shows incredible strength for you that you're able to think like that. Um, yeah, just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so angry and upset about this situation <laughs> and so impressed that you're able to just create something beautiful and to do good for so many other people in amongst, um, in amongst this situation. Um, so I've got a lot more to learn about Iranian food, but I would love, so I would love to ask you about a few dishes. Um, yeah. I recently made a dish for for New Year. Uh, I'm sure I'll say it wrong, but Nowruz. How do you say New Year in Persian? Yeah. Nowruz? Yeah, Persian, Persian New Year called Nowruz. Nowruz. Okay, so I made uh, reshte, a soup with a special noodles. Ah, ash reshte. Yeah. Ash um, tell, me, tell me about this dish. Oh, Ashreshte is one of Iranian traditional soup. Like, for example, Vietnamese, they have four. We have Ashreshte in Iran. Ashreshte is Persian noodle soup with mixed herbs and mixed beans. And we sometimes have it as a breakfast as well. And it's sometimes it's like a street food. Some shops in Iran, they only sell Ashreshte. 
And oh really? Yeah, yeah. There are some shops. They only say they are famous because of the Ashrash, especially in Tehran, capital city of Iran. And ah. like, yeah, like every like every mom in Iran can make Ashrash by the way. Like, <laughs> but sometimes it's nice, especially in winter when it's snow coming. We love it. Like have it outside, so we get that. So it's like a. Uh, mix of good things like uh, protein, vegetables, herbs. Tastes really good. I love ashrish. Everyone, all Persians, I love ashrish. <laughs> well, I I think when I made it, I didn't make it soupy enough. It was too thick. So next time, I've got some improvement uh, to do. But one thing I found I found so interesting about it was the kishk. Kashk, um, liquid waste. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Kashk. Kashk. So explain what Kashk is. <laughs> Kashk is Iranian Vegemite. <laughs> okay. So no, tell me Kashk, what it's made, yeah, how it's made. That's the joke. I was telling to, like, in my cooking classes, it said Iranian Vegemite is Kashk. It's Kashk is liquid whey made from yogurt. It's, it smells not good by itself, tastes not good by itself. But when you put it in the food, it's changed everything. It's delicious. It's like a liquid way or curd. C U R. So the one that I had was was powder. So obviously oh. there's a like it's more of a shelf stable version, which must be because it was I bought it in a in a box oh. and then you'd add water and then it would turn into that yeah, way. Yeah. So possible. That, That's possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So Kashk. Yep, Iranian Vegemite. I'm st- I knew I would be learning today. And the other dish, so in lockdown, I got really obsessed with um, with duck. I, there's this really great producer called Great Ocean Ducks in Victoria. They do free-range ducks. And I was doing oh. every duck dish that I could think of or that I could learn about. And the one one that I made was um, Fesanjun. Oh, my God. Fesanjun with duck. That's amazing. Well loved. <laughs> so tell me, tell, tell us about Fesanjun. Fesanjun is my favorite Iranian dish. In my cafe, it's number one favorite dish. Like everyone loves Fesanjun. But I do it with chicken. I don't do it with duck. North of Fesanjun is Iranian traditional uh, slow cook uh, like chicken or duck stew, like long time stay on the, uh, on the flame on the slow heat, with walnut paste, we put walnut, we put pomegranate molasses, we put the spices like nutmeg, saffron, turmeric, black pepper, that's only spices. And then it's like a one of very good dish in like Iran, I think lots of non-Persian people, they love Fesenju. Some people in north of Iran, they make it sour, and in Tehran, capital city, mostly they make it sweet. Some people, they like it sweet and sour because it's a nice balance, sweet and sour. Like I do in my cafe, sweet and sour. And yeah, it's like some people, they make it with kufte gelgeli, kufte gelgeli is like a meatballs, like lamb meatballs or beef meatballs. Instead of ah. putting duck or chicken, they put meatballs in it. Oh, that sounds amazing too. Yeah, I like that too. It's like a delicious 
I have to say, it was one of the most exciting dishes I've ever made in my life. Because as you say, you know, it takes a long time and there are so many different elements. To, and yeah, to, to have this sort of the sour sweetness of the pomegranate molasses, but then the sort of richness of the walnut um, and uh, the richness of the duck as well. And then I put fresh pomegranate over the top and it was just... Yeah so exciting and there's so much depth to the flavors i just absolutely loved it that's good that's very nice to hear yeah everyone loved that dish <laughs> you should come try with the chicken you make it with duck you have to try with chicken, with chicken okay with it's a date for sure <laughs> um so hamid it's it's such a privilege to talk to you and I'm so glad that you're here doing what you're doing. But what would you like to say to people who haven't thought much about refugees and, and the difficulties that they have here in, in Australia? Uh, just, uh, some people, they judge us before knowing our stories. I just want to say to those people first, you know, better to just hear us why we left our country in that way then judge us. That's it. Sometimes it disappoints me, you know, sometimes I hear from, I never felt racist, you know, in Australia. I always had a good friends, good like uh, people around my, me. I think I was lucky. But I hearing some, from some people who came from my country or like Afghanistan, different countries who came by boat, they sometimes, not always, maybe two, three times I heard that, they felt very bad about, you know, coming Australia by boat with other people. Like I had a friend who was uh, going to English classes and uh, one of the a friend in English classes who was from, she was from uh, Thailand and she had Australian like husband. And she was telling him, like my husband telling me, you guys who came by boat to Australia, they are spending our tax money. You know? <laughs> and that girl who was going to Thailand, like, you know, if she, that was, I, I don't I even, not, don't, I don't want to talk about it, but it's like, it's not happy, it's not, it's sad. Not all of us like that. Some people, I have friend, he has a building now, he came same time with me, now he has building company. He has 40 workers, 40 workers, and he made job opportunity, you know. So many of people, they have like now business owner, they're making job opportunity. Yeah, there are some people, some, they're unlucky, something happened to them, or they're too old to learn English language. Sometimes they get uh, Centrelink money. Of course, there are some people like that as well, but not all like that, you know, and I don't know what to say. But... Well, I think the best way, the best chance of ensuring that anybody in Australia contributes to our society is to look after them and to give them proper, secure pathways to education and employment and and yeah housing and everything that you need to build a life i think that punishing people for coming here um you know in a different way is is not the way to make the most of of that human life and i think it's you know it's great for people to hear your story so they can understand more have more compassion and empathy and of course enjoy the gifts that you bring to us here in australia yeah i think that's the uh, things 
<laughs> anyway, Hamed, thank you so much for sharing your story and for, te- <laughs> for teaching me about Iranian Vegemite and so much more. Um, it's really, it's really fantastic to chat to you. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me and to give me this opportunity to talk. <laughs> okay. Right. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.